I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi. Laura and I are excited that Play Me will be returning this January with a whole new series of plays. But in the meantime, please enjoy this encore presentation, which is a show from our archives that was recently aired on CBC Radio 1. This presentation, just in time for your holiday binging, is a clean version with some of the course language edited or dipped out. If you wish to hear the original show without any of these edits, you can find the original show further in our podcast feed. Until the new year, you can always listen to Play Me on CBC Radio 1 Sunday nights at 9 and Wednesday nights at 11. Happy holidays. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me, your ticket to some of the hottest plays by award-winning playwrights. We're back with the next play in our series, the Christmas crime thriller, Butcher, by Governor General award-winning playwright, Nicholas Bion. Chris, you and I have been counting down the days to be able to share this nail-biter of a play with our listeners. Nicholas Bion is one of our favorite writers, and this script is jam-packed with all the elements that make for a spine-tingling audio drama that will hook you in at the start and not let you go until the bitter end. Yes, that is so true. And Butcher has that distinctive film noir edge, reminiscent of those classic radio mysteries that are so entertaining and full of suspense and intrigue. The play is set on Christmas Eve, but we warn you, this is far from a feel-good holiday show. Butcher serves up a visceral tale while tackling big questions about justice and truth. And what's unique about this show is that the playwright centers the story around the fictitious country, Lavinia. And the play also features a compelling imaginary Slavic language created just for the show by two University of Toronto professors. Butcher first premiered at Alberta Theatre Projects and quickly became a hit that toured the world. Why Not Theatre produced it in 2015 in Toronto and that sold-out production was included in the 2016-17 Off-Mervish season. We want to warn you that this play is not for the faint of heart. It contains scenes depicting violence, including sexual assault, and is not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. This is Butcher by Nicholas Bion.
Sorry. No? No. You're sure? I'm sure. Take another look. I wish I could help, but I've never seen this man before. So he doesn't look familiar at all. Damn. Took this shift because I figured it'd be quiet, you know, but instead I'm stuck with Sergeant Santa. Has he said anything? Nothing, except for, uh, Nechuvi Nichorachi. At least that's what it sounds like. He said it. Nechuvi Nichorachi. Right, that. Is he drunk? There's no alcohol in his breath, but he was a bit wobbly on his feet, though. He's under the influence of something. Drugs? And he said that every time you... What? So, so what? The thing, sentence, Nechuvi whatever. Oh, yeah. Every time I ask him a question, why? Any idea what he might be saying? I thought it was Russian at first, but no, it's some obscure Eastern European... Lavinian. I have a colleague who's from there. Think he's up right now? Uh, not at three in the morning, no. Yeah, it's just... I called for a translator about Christmas Eve. God knows when he'll get here, if... Oh, and I guess technically it's Christmas now. Merry Christmas. Thanks. Anyway, I tried Google translating this, but apparently I can't spell because it tells me he's saying, I want very much to woo you. I doubt that somehow. Yeah, otherwise he ain't going to like my answer. Not that gay isn't, you know. So what do you make of the whole military uniform? That's you said he had really throwing me up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wait till you see this. Jesus. Had this around his neck. Ever seen one before? Is that for shark fishing? It's a butcher's hook. You know, for meat. My uncle brought one home for Halloween one year because I was dressing up as Captain Hook. Yarr! I didn't mean to. Sorry. Anyway, my mom didn't let me use it. She was afraid I'd take some kid's eye out with it. Prohapsy me. Google says it means arrest me in Lavinian. That's how I figured where he's from. At least I know I spelled it right. That's your business card, eh? It is. So you see why I'm confused that you don't know him. I'm just as confused as you are. I'm getting that vibe. Sir? Sir? How did you get my card? At least he's consistent. Did someone give this to you? I don't think he speaks English. Yeah. Does he even understand where he is? Dunno. When the two kids brought him in, he was kids? a bit All oh, right, so these two kids, well, these two young guys or whatever, they show up at the station around midnight or so carrying our friend here. Officer Taylor, the desk clerk, you met him downstairs on your way in. He says, can I help you? Blah, blah, blah. But they just dump Sergeant Santa on a chair and take off. It's possible someone's playing a prank on you? If so, it's not funny. Yeah, well, stranger things have happened. A few months ago, we had a teenager drop off his Alzheimer's grandma because he had a date and didn't want a babysitter. I mean, who treats family like that, am I right? Yeah. Anyway, it's just the details here that don't make sense, you know? The uniform. Can't get this at a hardware store. And your business card. Maybe someone thought he'd need a lawyer. An intellectual property lawyer? Maybe he's a serial downloader. 
this your first time in a police station or something? It is, as a matter of fact. Well, so you know, you're allowed to make jokes in here. It's the middle of the night, Inspector. And I woke you up. My bad. What I'm trying to figure out is, why use your business card? If I don't want to leave someone a note, I'll use a post-it. Could he be homeless? Mentally ill? Maybe I gave him money, I don't know, and that's how he got my card? Hmm. Here you are, my good man. Go get yourself a sandwich and... Oh, here's my card in case you're ever arrested for, you know, plagiarism. Yeah, okay. In any case, I don't think he's homeless. The homeless have an unmistakable... Aroma. He doesn't. And there's no way to say if he's... I called the Cam H's and psych wards in the area. No one's gone missing. It's pretty clear he's been drugged, though. Yeah. Maybe he was playing hard to get, so the two kids gave him a roofie. (laughs) I know. I know. My wife says I've got the worst combination ever. A foul sense of humor and lousy timing. (laughs) It's fine. The download joke was okay. Yeah? With two daughters of the internet age, you learn a thing or two about copyright. Anyway, I... Okay, can I be that guy? What guy? The guy who brings up his kids and then immediately shows you their picture? Sure. I used to hate people who did this before I had kids, right? And then I had my own. And now I'm that douchebag. That's Aaron. She's 13. And that's Iris, 7. They're lovely. Yeah, they're pretty special. I finished my shift just in time for presents in the morning. Any kids? No. Lucky you, in a way, because a wife and two daughters, that's a lot of estrogen in the house. I mean, lots of pink, lots of pastel-colored everything, eh? Yeah. Wow. But you know what the worst is? The bathroom, hands down, so much... She butter this and pomegranate that. It's a goddamn fruit garden is what it is. I swear, you could fart in there all day and no one would ever know. (laughs) All right, all right. You know you've hit bottom when the fart jokes start, am I right? Hit bottom? Oh, yes, I see. Wait, I'll say it for you. Shut the hell up, Inspector. (laughs) Uh, I should follow my own advice sometimes. Don't worry about it. I'm sorry I couldn't be of more help, Inspector. Look, do me a favor. Stick around for a bit. Just in case we get lucky and the translator shows up. Is it... I have breakfast at my cousin's in Brampton tomorrow. Of course, I totally understand, but I'm sure you want to clarify this whole business card thing as much as I do, no? Just give me another 20 minutes. I'll get you a coffee, and I solemnly swear not to make any more jokes... That's a better deal than my wife gets. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm going to YouTube some hockey fights to pass the time if you're interested. Still raining, eh? Yeah. Do you remember when we had, you know, snow at this time of year? I grew up in England. Doesn't it snow there? Occasionally. Lots of rain. Then you must be feeling right at home, friend. How do you take your coffee? Black, thank you. No, trust me, not black. One sugar? Two? Three? It's for your own good. Coffee? 
Do you want a coffee? <laughs> Poor guy. It's a hell of a way to spend Christmas. Marco. Marco. Still love his voice. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't speak Lavinian. Duchess. Marco. My name is Hamilton Barnes, sir. I'm sorry. Do you know where you are? A police station? Toronto? Toronto? Yes, Toronto. You didn't know that. Yes. How did you get my business card? Are you all right? Marco! No, no. Hamilton. I'm not who you think I am. We're blessed in Maria for you. Marco! Madame Pomachi. Stacote just Thanks. It's not easy with it. I bet you couldn't get him to shut up, eh? Actually... Uh, he said something? Yeah, a few things, but I didn't the understand... The whole business? No. Other things. Huh. Strange that to you he would, you know, talk. Yeah. Well, maybe not, actually. I'm pretty sure Lavinia was under communist rule. He's definitely old enough to have lived through it. Uh, the police weren't exactly, you know, guardians of the peace. A lot of people there still have trouble trusting any police for that very reason. He doesn't know you're not a cop. I don't exactly give off a law and order vibe. <sighs> nope. Well, if he's spooked by cops, he picked the right night. It's a damn ghost ship around here. Mola. What? Mola. Is he saying thank you? Maybe. Vola. Vola. I guess this qualifies as progress. Vola. Yeah, okay. Now wait till you try the coffee. Hey, so how come you know so much about Lavinia? My colleague. Whenever we complain about things here, he goes off about back in my day. Mm, that must get annoying. Holy f this is bad. Don't drink it before I make you sign a waiver. That is... Unspeakable. And I put four sugars. <laughs> <laughs> Communism must have been worse than I thought. You a hockey fan? Not really. No, no, of course. It's uh, soccer, right? No, football. <laughs> My parents were from Birmingham, so I was a de facto Villa fan. De facto? You always talk Greek and stuff? It's Latin, actually. Latin, right. Duh. Oh, God, no, I didn't mean... Just pull on your leg. Explain something to me. I'm asking because I really just don't get it. How do you get excited about a sport where you're lucky if they score one goal in a game? That seems crazy. Doesn't that happen in hockey? Sure, every now and then, but it's, it's the exception, not the rule. D.W. The wife. Hey, honey. Pumpkin, what are you doing up? Well, Santa won't come till you're asleep. 
No, no, that's one of his rules. He doesn't deliver presents to children who stay up waiting for him. Of course I'm sure, sweetie. You can ask mommy. She likes to double-check her facts, the little monster. See, now that you know, go to bed. Honey, I'm sure that Santa didn't forget about you. Because he told me. That's right. In fact, he's with me now. He just told me what he's bringing you. What? Uh, no, I, I don't think Santa has time to talk to you right now. No, of course he likes you. He's just very busy. All right, all right. I'll ask him. Okay, so, bad move, telling her I was with Santa. Could you be Santa? Sorry? Just say hi or whatever. Tell her you're in a hurry. I do a voice, but she recognizes me now. Uh, Please. She thinks Santa forgot about her. I guess. Bless your cotton socks. It's Iris, the seven-year-old. Pumpkin? Santa's going to say hello, but he's in a hurry, okay? Uh, hello? Uh, uh, nice to meet you, Iris. Uh, yes, of course this is Santa. Now, don't you worry. Ho, ho, ho. I haven't forgotten about you. You're next on my list. So long as you're asleep, of course. Will you go straight to bed now? That's a good girl. Good night, Iris. Ho, ho, ho. Pumpkin, go to bed now. Yes, Santa's from England. Put Mommy back on the phone. Hey, if she's not asleep in 20 minutes, you have my permission to grind all my Ativan into a glass of warm milk. All right, see you soon, honey. Thank you. Don't mention it. That was a pretty good Santa. Oh, thanks. By the way, I was kidding about the Ativan. Iris, you know? She's starting to have doubts about Santa. Her sister knows he's not real, of course, so I'm sure that isn't helping, but I guess we don't want her to grow up too fast, you know? Let her stay a kid for another year. I gotta tell you, when Carol was pregnant with Iris, I was hoping for a boy. I, I don't know if that's sexist or whatever, but I guess since we already had Aaron, and I just feel like boys are less naive than girls, maybe. But you know what the toughest thing is? Maybe it's because I'm a cop, you know? I get that, but I'm terrified they're gonna get raped. Keeps me up at night. Erin, she's 13, right? Just starting to have... And every now and then I catch some dude, some guy in his 30s or 40s, giving her a look. And I'm telling you, I want to go over and break every bone in his body, right? And I know that's wrong, but still, it's there. That impulse, you know? Guys who with children, I'm sorry, but they should get the death penalty. I know that's not politically correct or whatever these days, but seriously, maybe I gotta have kids to understand this, I don't know. I don't think so. You wanna protect what you love. But I bet you don't believe in the death penalty. Yeah, no surprise. Why do you say that? Well, cause, you know, just the way you're dressed, whatever, cause you're educated. I don't know, the accent you can tell. Okay. No, it's like, look, 
You're the kind of guy who uses words that make guys like me want to, you know, punch you in the face. That's all. Not literally, obviously. <laughs> Sorry, that was... You like football and, I don't know, polo or whatever. I'm a hockey and UFC guy. It's totally cool. Please tell me you've heard of UFC. It's cage fighting. You've never watched it. Guilty. Of course not. No one who did would call it cage fighting. I'll tell you this, friend. It's the sport of the future. It's like boxing meets martial arts. These guys are warriors. And, and there's a whole code, you know, honor. It's amazing to watch. After these guys finish kicking and punching and kung fu in each other, they hug it out. It sounds like bread and circuses now. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They're not clowns. Of course. I only meant... What? Watching people hurt each other just isn't my idea of a good time. They're not people, they're athletes. <laughs> you sound like Carol. She's watching once or twice and hates it. She says they all look like convicts with the tats and stuff. Right. <laughs> What's wrong, buddy? I think he's feeling sick or something. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Okay there? Right. I don't think any more coffee's a good idea. Maybe he wants water. Oh, yeah. That makes more sense. What the hell is wrong with you? I don't know who you think I am, and I have no idea who you are. Okay? Do you get it? I don't speak Marco. If... You are who you say you are, you'd be dead. Vraveme, there is more than Nicho Malinagoti. Aliaso Marco. Tatia. Da. Here you go, buddy. Vola. I took his hat off. It was undignified. You better? Okay. Should he see a doctor, maybe? Well, as I said, I'm just waiting for the translator. He looks like he's in pain. Bulnaka, Bulnaka! Okay, Bulnaka, Bulnaka. What, what is it? Bulnaka! Bibu, Bibu, Bibu! An ambulance? Jesus. The East General is five minutes away. I can give him some aspirin, but I can't just let him go. Detective, look at him. I get it, I get it. Just give me a second. There's protocol that needs to be followed. Is he under arrest? Well, no. I mean, unless he's turning himself in. Why would you think that? Because he had a note that said, arrest me, written on your business card. Right. Though that could have been the two men who... I just hope his habeas corpus rights haven't habeas been infringed. Habeas corpus? To hold the body. Oh, yeah, I know what it means, Mr. Barnes. I just feel like all of a sudden you're lawyering up. I'm a simple guy, and I might not know the difference between Greek and Latin, but I'm not an idiot. I never implied. Nor for the record am I a sadist. I can see that our friend here is in pain. Of course. I'm sorry if it sounded... I just don't like to see people suffering. A compassionate lawyer. It must be Christmas. But let me ask you a question. Why is his boot untied? I hadn't noticed. Well, he only could have done it when I went out. Yeah? You didn't notice him? Lean over, untie his boot? 
I was on my phone. Candy Crush. Mr. Barnes. Whoa, buddy. You want the boot off? Okay, okay, I got it. God, did you see that? What? I think it must be an infection of some sort. I don't know. Are you serious? It probably hurts like hell. Detective. Yeah, I'll call an ambulance. It'll be faster if I drive him. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll let him know that you're coming. Good idea. Chris, put me through to Emerge at East General. Hi, this is Detective Lamb at 56 Division. Yeah, I, I got a John Doe on his way over to you with a serious foot infection or something. He'll be there in five, ten minutes. Yes, he'll be with a lawyer, Hamilton Barnes. Yes. Thank you. They're waiting for you. Great. Give me your card and I'll call you when he's being seen. I don't, I don't have any on me. I'll call you in an hour, okay? You can let me know. Can I help you? Didn't you call for an interpreter? Quite something. Told you. Uh, I'm confused. Are you a nurse or a translator? Nurse, but I'm also on the roster of police interpreters. Not exactly a lot of Lavinians in the city. You're lucky you caught me at the end of my shift. Yeah, makes you believe in Christmas miracles. What is it? Some kind of toenail infection? Doesn't look infected. The wound is surprisingly clean, actually. And just so you know, he doesn't have any toenails. They've been pulled out. What? Like out? Out? Yeah. Jesus. Was he tortured? That'd be my guess. Christ. I can still take him to the hospital. You're next of kin? You don't think he needs to see a doctor? Well, of course he does, but he shouldn't be walking anywhere. I can call an ambulance. Yeah, please. I can drive him out. It's too dangerous for him to walk. Can, can you put his feet up? He'll be more comfortable. Hello? There can be a lot of things in a police station, but comfortable ain't one of them. 20, 25 minutes. That long? He's not in critical danger. I'd like to ask him a few questions. Of course. Don't you think he's been interrogated enough? Uh, just because he can't walk the walk doesn't mean he can't talk the talk. <laughs> okay, that was real. I'm sorry. It's a form of Tourette's. Miss? This uniform, where did you find him? Two kids dropped him off at the station, why? It's a Sujni uniform. Rank of general. General? Well, I didn't mean to demote you to sergeant, friend. This isn't a joke. Sorry? A Sujni general, detective. That's like someone walking in here dressed in a Nazi uniform. A Nazi uniform? Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why do I feel like the odd man out here? You know what she's talking about? I just think comparing a civil war to the Third Reich yeah, is a bit you much. Live in the Annans? I'm sorry. You're not from Lavinia. No. Not a lot of people know our country even exists, let alone our history. Yeah, but this guy's like Google in real life. And there's nothing civil about genocide. Look, I, I wasn't trying to. I'm not an expert by any means. 
I read The Economist, and I have a colleague who's from there who explained it to me once, and he called it a civil war. I bet he did. So the uniform is from the war? Okay, what does this mean? Nichu v. Nichu Rachi. Sounds like I won't tell you anything. I guess it bears out the torture theory. Ask him for his name. Not the talkative type, I guess. Gosh, I'm glad we waited for a translator. Ask him if he knows the two kids who brought him in. He says he doesn't know. Tell him we want to help him, but we need to know who he is first. He doesn't want to say his name. What did he say? He doesn't believe I want to help him. That's all he said? Yes, why? Just seemed like there was more than that. How long has he been in Canada? He's asking if I'm a Sujni or a Desni. Those are the two ethnic groups? Let me guess. He's Sujni and you're... Desni. Whoa! Christ, I won't have any of that. Do you hear me? I will not have you threatening people. I'm sorry about that. He hasn't been violent at all. That's fine. I don't like this sudden change in attitude. It may be a mental health issue. I don't get the sense that he's cray-cray. If we believe what his uniform says... You're assuming it's his. It fits him perfectly. You understand that every high-ranking Sujni officer is wanted by Interpol. If he's one... Now, hold we... on. Just because he's wearing a There's uniform... There's a tattoo as well. Excuse me? All Sujni officers have a tattoo above their heart. Cerberus holding a knife. Look, if it's not there... If it's not there, I won't say another word about it. Can you ask him to unbutton his jacket? The legality of all this is... questionable. I'm just saying, once a lawyer, always a lawyer. Please. Nalimbas. What's a Cerberus? It's a three-headed dog. Right. Let me guess. Latin. Greek, I think. What if it happened to plain old English? It, it's tattooed over the heart so they never lose courage in battle. I'm wishing I'd stayed home for this shift. Now, hold on. You're saying this old man is... what, exactly? The uniform, the tattoo, the attitude? Yes. Look, all I know is that high-ranking Sujni officers are wanted for war crimes. Man, but he's an old man. The war was 22 years ago. Can't you look it up on the Interpol database or whatever? I thought you were an expert. I don't have access here. I'd have to... Look, I got two kids waiting for me at home, so please don't make me go on a wild goose chase. I don't know exactly who he is, okay? But there's only a handful of people he could be. Jinimovir Ilich, the Black Wolf, Yorai Plamen, Kazimir Mistyov, the Red Knight, Yosef Zibrilovo, the Butcher... Wait, 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 what was the last one? Yosef Zibrilovo? What is his nickname? The Butcher. What? It was around his neck. Son of a bitch. Now hold on. 
anyone could have put that around his neck and dressed him up in that uniform. Everything you're saying is circumstantial. You can't convict a man over a piece of jewelry. Look, I, I don't know what's what, but you may be out of your depth here, Mr. Barnes. Maybe you should get this gentleman a real lawyer. I thought you were a lawyer. He's well, a copyright lawyer. Yes. What is a copyright lawyer doing here? I don't answer to you. He had his business card on him. How do you know him? I don't. So he just happened to have your business card? Yeah, we kind of went through this already. I don't care if you do or don't. So much for the Christmas spirit, then. This isn't funny. Miss, at this point, I ain't going to be home with my kids until the new year because of the paperwork this entire effing evening is going to generate. So trust me when I say I ain't laughing. Don't you realize who you have here? I don't know anything. Actually, there's no proof of anything exactly. in terms of this man's identity. You think this is all what? A fluke? All we know is that he's an old man who... I want to know who he was 20 years ago. Does it mean nothing to you that he's been tortured? Of course. But why do you care so much about a guy you've never seen before? I'm a lawyer. But you're not his lawyer. Yeah, that question's been bugging me too, Mr. Barnes. Look, I appreciate that you're a nurse translator, whatever, no offense. But in the short span of time you've been here, he's gone from being a victim to a war criminal. Naviyurimvim. What is she saying? I've no idea. Wait, now, what is he saying? Nothing nice. I'm sorry, but you can't go around accusing someone of being a war criminal. It's a matter of principle. You're right. Right. Well, there you go. This could just be some guy who happens to speak Lavinian, who happens to be wearing a general's uniform, who happens to have the Sujni tattoo, and who happens to be wearing a butcher's hook. Wouldn't want to jump to any conclusions. I'm sure these arguments all make sense in your head. But from a legal standpoint, it's all hearsay and conjecture. Let's Google them. Zabrilovo. That's an idea. Okay. D-Z-I-B-R-I... So slow down. D-Z-I-B-R-I-L-O-D-O. Not exactly a phonetic language, is it? Joseph Z, what she said, known as the butcher. She's not making that part up. Are there photographs of him? Hold on. It looks like him, doesn't it? Nope. See? What? It doesn't? I'm sorry, it doesn't look like him. It looks like him. What? The features are similar, I'll grant you. Similar? Look, yes, okay, it looks a little bit like me. It, it's not... That's not so crazy if you take into account that my family's from Lavinia. So you lied to me? No, I didn't lie. You said your parents were from Birmingham. My adoptive parents, yes. Oh, so you weren't de facto lying. I left the country when I was very young. You're related to him? With third or fourth cousin, something like that. I met him once when I was a kid, I think. So this is Joseph Zibri... Zibrilovo. Yes. Look, I don't think that he's... Don't you dare. Let me finish. I will not. If will you him, shut up? The two of you are giving me a headache. Let him finish, will you? All I'm saying is that I know he was a soldier in the war. I don't know if he was high-ranking or not. A general, not, but, actually. Well, maybe. That's not my point. He ran a concentration camp where... Allegedly. Excuse me? He's accused of that crime, not convicted of it. Spoken as a true patriot. Spoken as a lawyer, actually. 
And was it as a lawyer that you were so insistent on driving him to the hospital yourself? I don't think you'd have ever seen them again, Detective. Is that true? It is not. He's in danger here. Here? In a police station? There is a group of... of... people. They call themselves the Furioji. The Furies. Duh! Was he saying that he was kidnapped and tortured? You and I are going to have a long chat about your definition of truth. I was scared for him, okay? The Furioji, they're a death squad that tracks down Sojni leaders. So they're the ones who dropped them off here. That, that's what doesn't make any sense. When the Furioji catch you, they kill you. They aren't interested in justice. They want revenge. He shouldn't be alive. They've never let anyone go or handed anyone over to be tried. Uh, what did they ask you? Ted Suvoni, uh, what's the word for interrogate? I'm rusty. Oh, hold on. He just said they were asking about our neighbor, Yuri. Yes, but he's not finished. That's an exact translation? Word for word. Mr. Barnes, one more lie from you, and I will arrest you for obstruction. Okay, wait, I'm confused. Our neighbor. Not my neighbor. Our. Meaning both of you lived in the same house. I'm sure it was just an Nuh-uh. issue. Nah, The whole cousin thing wasn't really jiving for me anyway. So he's what? Your father? Your uncle? Father. I thought his two children died in a car accident before the war. My mother and sister did. They bought a corpse at the morgue and passed it off as my own. I was shipped off to England. I was told he was dead. This is the first time I've seen him in 25 years. Merry Christmas. Or whatever. I guess someone figured it was time for a family reunion. Of course. What? Yuri. They were asking him about Yuri. He was my fixer. The only person who knows... Yasili ni mrachayo po Yuriu. Arstu. Von ye yadini kois nome moi nime. Ti? Basti? Detective, you have to protect me. Okay, calm down. What the hell is going on? The Furioji. They're not looking for him. They're looking for me. Friend, you're in a police station. Take it easy. You don't understand who you're dealing with. Okay, okay, slow down. I said no one's going anywhere. We wanted to be 100% sure, of course. But now that you've confirmed it, it's a pleasure to finally meet you, Marco Zibrilovo. Miss, I'm gonna ask you. Gentlemen, there seems to be some confusion about who has the upper hand here. I'll say. Now for the last time. June 13th, 2001. May 3rd, 2007. 
How? What's wrong with you? Those are my kids' birthdays. Erin Lamb, grade 8 at Corselet Public School. Her best subject is math, and she's partial to red shoes. Iris is in the first grade, and her best friend is a shy Korean girl named Sunny. She was over last weekend and made chocolate chip cookies. Isn't that right? So you see, this isn't amateur hour. Lower your gun, detective. Daniel? Duh. Tell Detective Lamb where you and your men are parked right now. We're in front of 109 Grandview Street. Pine tree and yard is decorated with blue lights. You are not the target, Detective. My colleague is listening, and as long as you do as I say, and Daniel continues to hear my voice, neither your daughters nor your wife will be harmed. You have my word. Your gun, please. Don't do this. I'm sorry, but... Please! This is my family. Lock the door. Keys. Take my backpack. Put your phones in there, both of you. Take it from him, detective. Unplug that phone. Now. One of you may be tempted to yell for help or call attention to our little get-together. Let me be clear. The only result will be that everyone in this room and at 109 Grandview will die. Understood? Understood? Good. We can keep this civilized, can't we? What do you want? It's not what I want, Marco. It's what we want. I represent the interests of many people here. Don't call me that. He calls me a corvetina. It translates as bog donkey, but in Lavinian, it means something like a cunty whore. <laughs> a wonderfully progressive people, as you can see. Your soldiers urinate on enemy corpses, like dogs marking their territory. Do we? <laughs> Why, yes, I suppose we do. But we would like to take exception to something you said earlier, about how we seek only revenge and not justice. That is not true. We seek both. Your mistake is thinking that there is a difference. That's a fine bit of sophistry, but Does it I... make you feel better to use words no one understands? All I mean... I don't care what you mean. We've heard the arguments, and they are always the same. We tried to do it your way, you know. During the peace talks, we submitted a list of 14 officers we wanted tried for war crimes. The West agreed, but the Sujni brokered a secret deal with them to let them leave the country. Nothing would be allowed to derail the peace process. We learned our lesson. Let me ask you a question, Marco. If you take away the scales of justice, what's left? Nothing. Wrong. She's left with her sword. Detective, would you be so kind as to handcuff our friend here to the chair? This may surprise you, Marco, but we are not interested in killing you. Your cooperation is expected, however, and
and force will be used if necessary. Sit down. Please, do as she says. Please. Uh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Tie his legs with these when you're done. And take off his left shoe. Lest you find us unfair, we've decided to give your father a trial. We want him to confess to his crimes. Then together you and I will agree on a suitable punishment. You've already found him guilty of his crimes. Of course we have. But you haven't. <laughs> Such petulance. He's right. Why take part in your charade? You're going to kill us anyway. Quite the pessimist, aren't you? Everything depends on how cooperative your father is. Here's the deal, Butcher. Confess your crimes to your son and submit to our punishment... And he will live. He doesn't speak English. Oh, but he understands it, Detective. He's been a naughty boy pretending not to all this time. No, I really don't think Stop that Stop being so naive. Now, I suppose we can't have you confess all your crimes. <laughs> we don't have that much time. So instead, there is one specific instance we want you to share. One sin that is indicative of... Well... You'll see. There was, at his camp, one particular prisoner known as the Duchess. Vavotinya. Oh, how touching. He remembers her. She died in the camp. Tell your son what you did to her. Nay. Son of a bitch understands English. Tell him. Your death warrant was signed when we found you, Butcher. That's true. But his remains... unclear at the moment. He won't give in to your tyranny. <laughs> you hear that, Butcher? The proud man, your son. A principled man. I told you not to call me that. So one last time... Tell your son what you did to the Vaivotinya. All right. Our own special design. A combination bite stick and sound dampener. Ingenious, no? Confessions made under torture tend to be unreliable. Well, of course they are. But they're much more reliable when the subject is forced to watch a family member being tortured. I thought we talked about shouting, Marco. Gag him. Don't do this. I'm not asking for advice. It's not right. Of course it's not right. Now gag him before I make your family the victims of a home invasion. Good boy. There were a lot of escape attempts when your father's camp first opened. He needed a way to convince prisoners that such behavior wasn't worth the risk. Executing prisoners was useless, 
since it was more of a blessing than being alive. He needed a deterrent that was more permanent than beatings or simple torture. Now, to be fair, his solution was rather elegant, all things considered. He severed their Achilles tendons. <laughs> Captured escapees would have to crawl around the camp until they could walk again. And when they did, they limped. Liar! People with principles and integrity like you, Marco, are the same as the captured escapees. Everyone admires them for their courage, but so few are willing to pay the price. Your father understood that. He had a nickname for them. So is Gachi. It means those who grovel. Prescription bottle? It's Oxycontin. I have arthritis. Uh-uh. No painkillers. But... No. I... Please. No, I want him alert. He just passed out from the pain. I'm begging you. One. <sighs> Would you look at that? A man you hardly know is begging on your behalf. You should feel special. One. Have you changed your mind, Butcher? Show me, Marco. Show me. I'm talking to you. Smell. Grazna smell vodzine. Your son still has his right Achilles. You want to go through this again? Tisi korvetna. Tvoje mekike je bilo korvetna. Eninje mekike je sto je bilo korvetna. You old man, aren't you? Prepare the other foot. Please, please no. Such courage. Such fortitude. Okay, okay, Defta. Rachuvim, Rachuvim. Do I vote in you? Good. What? Marco, He wants you blindfolded. He can't tell you and look you in the eyes at the same time. What the hell? There's a certain poetry to it. Blindfold him. With what? I don't know. Your tie. <laughs> Too tight. Too tight. <gasps> okay. Now, Butcher, make sure you tell the truth, yes? Because if you don't... <laughs> understood? <laughs> Say it. Da, da. Mrongo klerno. Je kaču tvariti tešnu. 
Now I'll translate to make sure you... Oh, I just had a better idea. Marco, you're going to translate what he says. You may not see your father as he tells you his sins, but perhaps you can taste them. All right. You may confess, Butcher. Slow down so he can keep up. There was a, a prisoner in the camp. Everyone called her the d- Duchess. Because she always wore a dress, a, a purple dress. She was... Um, uh, uh, dangerous, you understand. She gave the other uh, prisoners hope, and uh, nothing is a, a, a threat like hope. I knew that I had to break her, break her without uh, killing her. So I invited 12 of my men to my quarters and brought the Duchess there. She was wearing the purple dress. I left the windows and the door open so everyone in the camp could hear her. We tied her to the desk, facing down... (laughs) And my men, one but... <laughs> After you finished, you told her to say something to everyone. What did you tell her to say to the soldiers after they were all done with her? Vola. And then you ordered your soldiers to take out their knives and... In order some the seki is Merkis nines trop. Puyeden striker seki. And had them mark her stomach. One notch each. <gasps> and then you patted me on the head and said... You earned your stripes, Corvetino. That can't... You would have been a child... It was rather shrewd of your father not to mention her age. It's true. The Vaivotanya died in that camp. Whoever I was before that night, she has never come back. Now I am just an instrument, Butcher. Do you see now, Marco? (laughs) You're right. There are no words. 
So what do we do with him now? You should keep... Yes. Hand him over to Interpol. He should be tried in a court of law. Oh, Marco, Marco, Marco. I had such high hopes for you. Yet you cling to these outdated notions of... Fine. Let us, for the sake of argument, accept that we hand him over to the ICC. He'll be tried for war crimes, yes? For crimes against humanity? How long, in your professional opinion, would his trial take? Ballpark it. A few years. Two, three... Yes. Four, five, ten? Maybe, yes. So he'll be 80 by the time he's convicted. And sentenced to, what, life? So they will send this 80-year-old man to live out the rest of his life in a facility where he'll have access to first-rate medical care and cable television. This to you is justice? How can you sit there and tell me, me, that this man deserves a fair trial, deserves to be treated with dignity? He has confessed. His guilt is not in question. And you yourself seem to agree that the crime is heinous. If you kill him, you become the very thing you are trying to destroy. Why? Why do you insist on speaking the language of civilization in a world that has seen so little of it? understand what revenge is, Marco? It is the confession of pain. Not whispered to a priest, but bellowed for the world to hear. Why? Because it is generous. It wants you to feel what it feels. And unlike you, it speaks a language everyone can understand. Fairness and hate. That is why I am not satisfied when you say to me, he must be tried in a court of law. So I ask you again, what is the just penalty for his crimes? You won't kill him with my blessing. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully we did not go through all this trouble for your blessing. We want our revenge to equal the, the ingenuity of your father's crimes. To kill the butcher is easy, but to have him executed by his own son? <laughs> well, now that is elegant. You will strangle him with this belt. I should warn you that it'll take several minutes to kill him. It's not as quick as the movies lead you to believe, I'm afraid. I won't do it. No. No. Vizi Kurvetino Stop calling her that! Have you no shame? Such chivalry, Marco. And you! Do you think you're so different than him? Remove his handcuffs. His legs, too. Threaten me. Torture me all you want. I won't do it! Do you think when we planned this that we said, and when we tell him to kill his father, he'll do it? You're a good man, Marco. A good and honest man who would willingly sacrifice himself at the altar of justice. I respect that. There's even a part of me that admires that. 
So don't worry. We're going to help you. Detective? Give me your handcuffs. Key. Neil. What? On your knees. Don't make me ask again. Please don't kill me. Please. It's to protect you from yourself, detective. Trust me. So, now, Marco. You can rationalize all night long. Shh, I... shh. The Furies must be satisfied. If I cannot offer them your father, then I must offer them someone else. Someone pure, someone innocent. Perhaps a 13-year-old girl. Or better yet, her seven-year-old sister. No, but... Wait, I've not... She, she's got nothing to do with... Oh, I know. I know. It's up to him, really. Oh, God. Mr. Barnes. Hamilton! Dear God. My daughter, but... She's... Iris! I'll kill him. I'll kill him. I'll do it. No, it has to be him. Please, Hamilton! I will kill you! Do you understand that? I will... Kill you if you hurt one hair. Detective, the reason I haven't gagged you is because I want to give you the opportunity to beg for her life. But one more outburst, and you won't even have that luxury. Understood? Please, I'm begging you. Not my daughters. They're, they're, they're children. They're innocent. You're asking the wrong person. Don't. Hamilton, you spoke to her. She just... She, 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 she. This is wrong. This is all wrong. Depends on your perspective. I know, but Iris, my little girl, Hamilton. No, this isn't right. No! Wait. Hamilton, wait. What, what are you saying? I'm sorry. Don't! No! Please! Please! Please don't hurt them, please! <laughs> They're standing by. Hamilton, I don't understand. You said yourself that he wasn't going to leave this room alive. What difference does it make? Iris! Please, Iris, she's seven! She's just... Marco! Please, have some compassion, some humanity. I'm sorry, we do not speak the language of no, mercy. No, 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 wait, wait, let me, let me talk to her some more! Vocapsite. Seg. Please! Radio Tashina. Seg. Hamilton. I'm begging you. Please. My family. Iris, he's a child. Please. Kushani Provedeni. Seg. They're waiting for the kill order. Would you like to give it? Stop it. Puvina Jovano Nafonche. Daddy? Are you there? I'm right here, Pumpkin. I'm, I'm right here, Pumpkin. Everything's going to be okay. Defta. I will give the kill order next, Marco. How many bodies will it take for you to execute a dead man? Because we'll go through this again with Aaron, and then Carol, and then our own... Okay, detective. okay. Don't harm her. Yes? You win. They're holding for the moment. But don't go thanking him until he's done the deed, detective. Marco? Oh, prasmi, Dace. Ah, 
That warms my heart. That's very touching, but... Tanchi! Beat you all of us for your last year in No, Butcher. I am the master of your last minutes. Now be a good father to your son and teach him to kill you properly. So na shlekako over on our aditi. Na vorn no dene. Marachas ostenuti moya le karchelok enima. Onde zabatai ramas onakos foya na estrache le karche. Dva tupa akomichenish. Kode povachish na moy vrespastiti. Na moy vrespastiti. Zat stenish. Gag him. Nabartami. Nisum pretola. Look at him, Marco. His poise, his dignity in his last moments. He's probably thinking to himself that, all things considered, this is a good way to die. That he has managed, despite everything, to maintain a shred of honor in his death. Get on with it. Show me. Hard work, killing. No, no, Libby! It's over. I know what you said to him. Do you? You're gonna kill me anyway. Oh, Marco. You lack imagination. What? I told him Lamb's real name is Istvak Pasic. Revenge would be meaningless if we allowed it to be overshadowed by a brave and noble act. Don't you agree? It would lack integrity. <laughs> Wouldn't bring a child into this world, are you crazy? Gutremnisni. To brizete kala naprit. Otus neid zavacenuto. Gajimo. Gajimo! For the record, I know the difference between Latin and Greek. Kulvetinum. We rented this building three months ago and had it transformed into a police station. Told them we were shooting a movie in here. I'd say they did a good job, wouldn't you? He was the last one, you know. 
We've hunted them all down. The Black Wolf was killed in Tallinn two months ago. He watched in the mirror as we made his wife cut his throat. When I was in your father's camp, I played a game with myself. I closed my eyes and imagined I was standing at my grave. And the game was to find the best inscription for the tombstone. My favorite one was, Here lies one who has paid for the indifference of the gods. <sighs> it amuses me that you think we would kill you. Why would we end your suffering? We want you to live. To bear witness to what was done to us. To know what it feels like to live a life poisoned by hate. You'll never know a peaceful night's sleep again. You'll wake every morning, no longer Marco, no longer Hamilton, but some other thing. An instrument. A monster. A gaping wound. You'll live in a world that is not simply indifferent to your suffering, but bored by it. Revenge will be the only way to dignify your pain. It's in your blood now. And you'll come after me. To hurt me, humiliate me, abuse me, and even kill me. And then me. what? And then what? No. This is over. Gajimo. Gajimo. That was The Breathtaking Butcher by Nicholas Bion. Laura and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we have. I think no matter how many times I hear that play, I always find something new in it. I'm Laura Mullen, here with Chris Tolley, and you're listening to Play Me on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM. We'll be right back. Hear Shakespeare like you've never heard before. Here's your show. Play On podcasts are epic audio adventures reimagining timeless tales with award-winning actors. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burning cauldron bubble. Filet of a forest snake in the cauldron boil and bake. Listen today at playonpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Nicholas Bion's work has been produced around the world and garnered over a dozen awards, including a Governor General's Award for Drama. Laura spoke to Nick about why he felt the need to invent a country and a whole language to tell this story, and how Hitchcock's thrillers inspire his writing. The play starts on Christmas Eve 
It's at a police station, and an old man's been left there by people unknown, and he's wearing a military uniform. He's been beat up, and he's got a butcher's hook around his neck, and on the hook is baited a business card with the name of an intellectual property lawyer. And as the play starts to unfold, we start to learn that um, at the center of it is is a war that took place in the country of Lavinia. And, and actually, I have to admit that when I was reading it, I didn't read the foreword. And I was reading in my mind Latvia, I think. And I just forgot or didn't take in that it was not a real country because the language is, is so convincing. What made you decide to create an imaginary country? That decision was made because I really wanted the conversation to be about the themes of the play and not about a specific conflict and a specific side in any any said conflict. And so by creating an invented country that has its own language, that was for me a way to make the conversation about what I wanted the conversation to be about. Rather than having somebody talk about the specifics of that particular exactly. war. Exactly. And, and say, you know, well, you got this wrong, or that's not true. or And those conversations are important, and there's room for that. But it's not the conversation that I wanted to have with this play. And how hard was it to create a country that doesn't exist, to make it feel like it does? Creating the country was quite easy. It was creating the language that was, and I, I say it was difficult, but actually it was quite easy for me because I literally went to the University of Toronto Slavic Languages, knocked on a door, and spoke to uh, Dr. Christina Kramer and basically asked her to invent a language for me. And within five minutes, she agreed. So it was really quite, from that point of view, it was quite easy. Do you know anything about her process in doing that? I don't know anything about the process in detail, but I know that Dr. Kramer and her collaborator, Dragana Obradovich, were very precise in how they invented this language. It has its own syntax. It has its own grammar. They really did an exceptional job at creating this language and making sure that it sounded both authentic and gobbledygook at the same time. Is it inspired by another language? It's a combination of several Slavic languages. So that's why it has a kind of Slavic flavor to it, but why it's not understandable uh, by anyone because the words are complete nonsense. And do you know anything about the process for the actors to be able to figure out what that accent was and to be so convincing that they were indeed talking about something that could be understood by other people? So the one thing that I did ask Christina when I first approached her was this language has to be phonetic because the actors have to be able to learn it phonetically. So I think that once that was in place, then it became a lot easier just in terms of like memorizing for the actors. But then Dragana uh, recorded all of the dialogue in Lavinian, in her own Slavic accent. And so we gave that to the actors, and we made it available to other productions. And so when when actors who needed to speak the language had a reference to it, also to how it sounds. One thing I thought was really interesting was in reading the play, I had the privilege of knowing what the characters were saying in that language. But I know that a lot of it isn't translated for the audience, which has an interesting alienating effect, yet you feel like you sort of know what they're saying? Why did you choose to have so much of the dialogue in something that the audience wouldn't know was said? 
One of the first, the first scene, in fact, that I came up with for the play was this confession that was made and it's still in the play and it's very close to its original form. And I wanted this confession to be done in such a way that we as an audience receive the violence of it without receiving the details of it because uh, we don't need the details. Uh, and, and in fact, in some ways, and this is a, it's a bit of a, a thing for me, is I'm not a great big fan of violence generally. And I always laugh a little bit when I say this because I think people think Butcher is a very violent play. And I think there is a lot of, uh, there's obviously a lot of violence in the play, but the violence is either abstracted or obfuscated in some way, and in some cases, linguistically. And in some cases, it was partially the staging that that people have done. But the parts where we see physical violence, that physical violence is somehow hidden in some cases, or again, abstracted in some way. I actually wanted to ask you about that because I had heard about the actual stage production and people fainting in the audience even though the violence is obscured, as you say, it's, I guess the implied violence is enough to push people on the edge. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think people's imaginations will always do a better job than I will of filling in the kind of blanks that I've left there. And I think that's where a lot of the reaction to the play in terms of its violence comes from. And one of the things that I always ask when, you know, a couple of times people have confronted me about the violence of the play, and I always ask them, I'm like, what did you see? What did you actually see? Because there's not a lot that they see, but their mind fills in the rest. And for me, that's part of the beauty of theater. So even though that you were able to obscure some of the violence in the play, you as a writer had to research torture, genocide, assault, all that stuff. And I just wonder to be able to create that so convincingly and to make so many unique characters with diverse perspectives. You obviously had to do a lot of research and you had to sort of go there mentally. For someone who doesn't like violence, how does that affect you? It's hard. It's hard to do that research, but it's reality. You know, it's it's going to sound horribly cliche, but it's the human condition. We're a species that is very violent towards each other. And so in some ways, there's no point denying it. And so while the research is hard, for me, it was also, it's important. And it it makes me understand more about being human and, you know, living in this world. And, And frankly, in some ways, it's probably one of the most pleasant parts of the process, only in that it's a constant learning For me, that's really exciting. Did you research any specific wars or genocides for inspiration or for research for the piece? I did. I think the assumption is often that the play is based on the the Yugoslav War, but actually the uh, Rwandan genocide was the original event that the play was based around. But then a couple of plays came out. Uh, Remember Goodness, Michael Redhill's play came out, and there was another one who's title escapes me at this moment. And so I was like, okay, I don't think I have a whole lot to add to that specific conversation. And so in fact, that's when I decided to abstract the location of it and make it an invented country. And what was the initial inspiration? Was it 
war or was it the idea of justice versus revenge? It was, um, I hope I'm not misquoting here. I believe I had read this in a book by Carla Del Ponte. And the line was something like, you can have peace or you can have justice, but you can't have both. And I found that really arresting because that really challenged a lot of my notions of, you know, how the world operates. And so Butcher was really an examination of that statement and kind of going, is that true? And just kind of looking at both sides of that statement. Because justice doesn't provide peace? Because in order to have, I I think, I really don't want to speak for her, but I think what she's getting at is that any attempt at real justice means that someone is not going to be happy with that result. And so peace is not possible in a situation like that. I find it a really challenging statement. And while I I really don't have an answer for it, I would say that my experience in researching and with Butcher kind of leads me to think that I think she's right. What I thought was so interesting about it was there were so many different perspectives and whether it's revenge or justice, it depends on who the person is. And you can't say necessarily that this person received justice because it depends on your definition of justice. And in the play, it sort of goes through all the various stages of what can be considered justice, and that's not actually how that one character would define it. Another really interesting thing about this play is that it deals with politics and war and genocide, but it's very entertaining. (laughs) How do you thread the needle between those two things? You know, I think if I had a cardinal rule for writing a play, it's don't bore your audience. And that is not to say that it needs to be trite or that it needs to be, you know, just pure entertainment. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that theater is written for an audience. It's not written for the actors. It's not written for me. It's not written for the director. It's for the people who are coming to see the show. And so with Butcher, I wanted to be sure... In a way, because the material is so heavy, and in some way because the the thematic question behind it is kind of heady, I think it needed a counterbalance to that. And so I immediately thought, well, it needs some kind of thriller, like it needs a thriller sort of uh, vehicle for that to go through. And so I went back to Hitchcock, who is kind of a touchstone in terms of how films are kind of constructed. And I mean, a lot of that, I will say, is he worked with excellent writers. And so it was with Butcher, I kind of looked at it in the same way in that if we stop, I find with Hitchcock, if you stop the movie, everybody's asking the same question. And so with Butcher, I was trying to do the same thing. If I stop the play at any point, I want to be sure that everybody's asking the same question. So that's sort of where that came from. Nick, you create what almost sounds like a light comedy at the top of the show. You've got Inspector Lamb, and he's serving up bad jokes and bad coffee, and you set the whole thing on Christmas Eve. I'm just wondering, were you trying to disarm the audience's expectation about just how dark this play was going to go? It, I, I love using comedies in 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 my work because I think it's a very it's a very effective way of sucking the audience in but without them feeling like they need to keep their 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 guard up. It, it kind of relaxes the audience a little bit. So one of the decisions that Wayne Mangesha, who was the original director of the show, 
she made, and I, I give her full credit for this uh, because I was wrong. This, this was one place where I was wrong, was in the script, I asked that when the play starts, it kind of has this somber music. It was cello music. It was very atmospheric. Um, but Wayne said to me, she was like, I think it just gives everything away. And she wanted to start it with Christmas music. And I was like, oh, that is such that is such better choice. Um, because it, it kind of, it, it helps do that thing that I was trying to do with the comedy, which is just kind of suck the audience in. And yeah, and I think the, the play is much better uh, for that choice. Was that the, the choice of uh, making it on Christmas Eve so that there's almost the illusion that it's a, you know, a, a late Christmas affair? Uh Yes, the 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 choice to to do it on Christmas was was a choice made very early on. Um, it was I, I have several plays that are that take place uh, in and around Christmas or on Christmas Eve. Part of that is is because of some of my feelings about Christmas, and and but also it does provide uh, a very legitimate reason why there, for example, in this case, why the police station is not full of people. Because it's Christmas Eve, most people are away, so it it, it serves a double purpose in that it, it does the what most people associate with Christmas is not what butcher is about. What are your feelings about Christmas? I can't let that go without finding <sighs> out. It's such a polarizing time of year. I know so many people who love it, and a lot of people who who don't. I, I confess, my feelings about Christmas have changed over the years. Uh, I think you know, I started out very much as a as a Scrooge, you know, and part of that was just related to, to my own memories of Christmas. But I think as, you know, as I've gotten older, and I think especially as I've seen more and more kids take part in Christmas, my feelings about it have mellowed, which, you know, uh, is, is great. Uh, it's fun. I mean, you know, I... This year I got a Christmas tree and I I enjoyed the experience of going out and getting one. So I want to talk to you about the characters and the, the characters that you have crafted for Butcher are, you know, if you really think about it, they're quite unlikable on the surface, all of them really. But I'm strangely rooting for them as I follow along in the play, it, even the Butcher sometimes, strangely. Um, I do have empathy for him, even though everything that I've learned about him, I, I should not, but I, you know, I do. And I'm just wondering, how do you manage as a writer to make such flawed people likable? I think what I've tried to do with these characters is make sure that they are all human beings. And in other words, they're not there as ciphers or symbols or positions that I'm trying to argue for or against. They are people in a room. There's a dynamic that is created in that room because of the people in that room and the relationship between these people. And the things that they do that make you feel negatively towards them and the things that they do that make you feel positively towards them, these things don't offset each other. They just are. Uh, you know, this idea that... that you know, good people can do bad things. Bad people can do good things. It, it's it's a very it's a very wide canvas, um, and so all I'm trying to do is is just show that there are that there's a wide yeah that there's a wide um, range of choices, decisions that people can make, 
And some of them are decisions that you can't take back and that are inhumane. And, and, and I think part of it is that there is that possibility in everyone to do both the best and the worst things. Um, it is not, it's, it's, it's a choice that we all make and it's an active choice and that those choices have consequences always. In life and in the news and movies, TV, we're constantly exposed to violence and we often seek it out in our entertainment. But I would say that it rarely has the impact that your play has when we bear witness to the butcher's murder. I just want to know, why did you choose to have us experience the murder in real time on stage? And what was the audience's reaction to that? How did they handle witnessing that in the theater? Yeah, it, we've had a range of uh, responses to to that particular scene. And, you know, I, I mean, to your point, I think a lot of the the violence that we tend to see, uh, particularly on screens, is a very easy violence or a very sort of clean violence, if I can use that term. And I think certainly one of the things that I was trying to do specifically with that scene was to bring in one of the elements that we almost never see in violence, which is the temporal aspect of it, the time that it takes, you know, even to die from a gunshot, whether it's a gunshot, a knife wound, we, you know, we don't, we don't tend to see how long that takes. And it's in that time that that time forces us to reckon with what we are watching and what we, you know, the actions that have led to this place. So with Butcher's death, that that scene on stage takes, I think we got it to about two and a half minutes uh, was where we landed, which is about half as long as it would actually take in uh, real life. We tried it at five minutes and that was, it just was not possible. That that was, I mean, and, and actually not only for the audience, but as, for the poor actors to have to sustain oh, that for yes. five minutes was yeah. just not, that was just not a fair ask. But w- what I think is so interesting is that a lot of people think that scene is a lot longer than it actually is. Um, because we're, we're, I think we're so unused to staying in, in a kind of stasis when it comes to violence that your brain just doesn't know what to do with that time. Um, and to me, that's a very interesting place to be. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the female character, the translator, uh, the anti-hero, um, of the play. I find her interestingly relatable because when I hear her story, like I'm with her, I agree with her. I, 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 although I wouldn't, of course, I'd like to think I wouldn't do what she's doing. When I hear her story, I, 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 I understand it. But what's so interesting about her character is when she enters uh, the play, she seems like a secondary character at first, which is so often the case in narratives where the woman is sort of um, the uh, add-on character to f- you know fill out the middle of the show. But she ends up holding all of the power. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about developing her. Yeah, I think with Elena, you know... Uh, the fact that she does, she comes in a little bit later in the play, even though we, we you know, that we talk about her before, but she's talked about as a man 
uh, Lamb and Hamilton just assume that the translator is going to be a man. And so when she comes in, in some ways, again, it's all part of that work of uh, there is nothing threatening about her. She comes in and you just figure she's going to, she's going to, you know, she's just going to be the translator. They're going to start figuring out what's going on. And I think we still at that point think that the story is somehow very much around Hamilton and the butcher. And she's the voice of reason too. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, and she starts uncovering what what is really happening, even though, you know, we later find out she knew from the, from the word go. And I think the other thing, and, and this was one thing that I was in some ways very excited about doing with this play, was that the power that she has is, it's not, it's not violence. Uh, you know, th- th- there's a gun that appears in this play, but it, it, it comes and goes very quickly. Because in this room, in this dynamic, the gun has no power. Um, because the, the power is about information, about what people know about other people, who people are. I, lo- I love her. I love her character. I love everything she goes through. She has a huge journey in the, in the play. And I also think it's a, I think it's really fun. It was really fun to, to watch Michelle, Michelle Monteith do that do that play because also just because of of you know i think physically we don't expect that kind of power from michelle but of course she has it in her like you know i've seen her i've seen her in a lot of things over the years and i'm always like she just she just the commands power walking on stage i love it for someone who is as accomplished as you are as a writer not just for the theater but also for the screen and for tv um, I want to ask you at this sort of strange time in history when when theater we're realizing how fragile theater is and here you and I are describing a live show while reviving the tradition of, of of radio drama. I wonder why you still like theater or still are interested in theater when obviously more people get to see things on TV in film. What is it for you? that draws you to the theater? This is, uh, this is the easiest question you've asked, you've asked me so far, which is great, which is, and the answer to it is having a relationship with the audience. That is what I love about the theater. Um, Butcher is not an example of this, but I love direct address. I love talking to the audience. I love having characters engage the audience in a conversation. Uh, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's a one-sided conversation, but, but it is very much about people in the same room talking, like having having a dialogue. That is, that is something that you just cannot have uh, in film or TV. And that's the thing that I keep coming back to. You know, I think the more it goes, the more I want to do direct address. Um, because in, 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 in some ways, too, because it is the thing that makes theater different from film or TV. I don't think that trying to trying to make plays that are like film and TV, I don't know that that is a way to to get an audience into the into the theater because I, I don't think theater can win. I think this was David Mamet's expression of like it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Uh, I mean, you just can't win. But but if you look the audience in the eyes, that's something that you can't have um, in film and TV. And that's the part that I find so exciting. 
When I read the play, I thought, oh, there are all these twists and turns and nothing is as it seemed. And then when I was done, I went back and I thought, how did I get fooled? What were all of the red herrings that were planted? Can you talk about the craft of writing this thriller that had such a satisfying end? Yeah, it's, I think the, 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 the thing that helped craft the play was that it took a long time to write. Um, and there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of false starts and sort of avenues that I went down that, that didn't work out. Um, I think part of what helped in terms of crafting it is that the, the, the audience, the, the sort of the trip that I want the audience to go on is very similar to what, um, Hamilton has to go on, which is, uh, Lamb Lamb is trying both to disarm Hamilton and prime Hamilton for what he's what they're going to ask him to do. Um in the same way that that the audience is, you know, is asked is disarmed about what is going to happen but also primed to is also primed to to kind of be ready for what is going to happen. Um and you know, there there's it's the, the crafting of it was was very precise, uh, with the one ex- exception being that the only thing that I hadn't done in my outline, that hadn't been sort of laid out in the outline, was that Lamb was part of the Furies. That came at a point where I got stuck, where, where I was moving along and the whole so originally the whole idea was that Elena did everything was sort of doing it by herself and you know that Lamb's daughters who at that at that time were real were being held hostage for Lamb to cooperate and then I just hit a point where I was like I I I don't quite know what where to go here it it kind of just got I I just got stuck and um and then one day I was working on it and I just, I had this idea. I was like, well, what if Lamb is in on it? And that just broke open the the sort of last third of the play. That's when it was like, oh yeah, then of course, it everything falls into place at that point. Um, and so that required a little bit of going back and rewriting, but it was, it's one of those very rare, but very satisfying moments as a writer where you just go, Oh, that's 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 it. Like the idea comes in and it solves every problem. It was it was really yeah. I I have fond memories of that moment. It's just such a satisfying reveal as an audience member. And I thought Tony Napo, who plays Lamb in this uh, audio recording and in uh, the Toronto production, I thought that must be just such a, a fabulous moment for him on stage when he uh, starts speaking. Um, in the language and yeah. uh, in reveals that he's not the sort of dope that he's been uh, leading us to believe. Yeah. And Tony was, was such a great, um, he, he's such a good choice for that because he can do both so well. Um, and, and of course, you know, in his career, he's, I think he's done a bit of both. And so it was nice to sort of, you know, take him down one, one way, but know that as soon as he needed to turn, it was, it was going to, it was going to happen. 
I just want to take a moment and say thank you so much. I always enjoy speaking with you and I just love Butcher. I'm so honored that we're able to share it with our listeners. So thank you so much. No, thank you. It's great. It's always fun to talk to you guys. I love working with you guys. (laughs) That was Nicholas Bion talking about his play Butcher. Next week, we're back with the Governor General award-winning play Carried Away on the Crest of a Wave by David Yee. From the shores of Thailand to a suburb in Utah to a mysterious Kafkaesque hole in the ground, Carried Away on the Crest of a Wave gives us a brief glimpse into the lives of people connected by the cataclysmic December 26, 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami that claimed the lives of over a quarter of a million people. Butcher was written by Nicholas Bion. It featured Tony Napo, Andrew Musselman, John Cohenskin, and Michelle Montalith. The Toronto Theatrical Stage production was directed by Wayne Mangesha and was produced by Why Not Theatre and Butcher's Block, and it was presented at the Theatre Centre. Butcher received its world premiere at the 2015 Alberta Theatre Project's Playwrights Festival in Calgary, Alberta. The Levitian language was created by Christina E. Kramer and Dragonal Obradovich. The sound design and edit are by Gregory J. Sinclair. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Expect Theatre or Instagram at Play Me Podcast. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. A special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is RF Norani. Our senior director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.